We know more about customers now because we're forced to, you know, we're going into the end of cookies where we can just go grab a piece of MarTech or AdTech and, you know, pay for those early moments. And, you know, all of us are the products on the internet and, you know, other companies are tracking us and, and providing that information. Well, that's going away. And companies are now looking at these 28 moments, which is really the average of a considered purchase. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Asher Matthew, and I'm back on the Sunny Side Up podcast. I know I have been off the podcast for a little bit because, you know, the amazing, amazing, amazing responsibilities I have at DemandBase, the company that I love also, uh, have kept me busy, but I'm back. And so today, you're all in for a treat. Because it seems like the macroeconomic trends are pushing us to think about different types of go-to-market motions. And we have one of the, the, the not one of the, but I probably the best person to talk about partnerships and channels and ecosystems on the podcast. And so I'm excited to have Jay McBain on the podcast. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So the topic we're going to focus on is the other moments of revenue magic, right? And so that's the that's what we, we picked. But before we dive in, right, Jay? Tell our audience a little bit about you. I'd be surprised if people don't know you, but again, given that your focus is a lot to do with partnerships and indirect channels uh, and the audience for this is primarily like direct folks, it would be great for them to just have get to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to Catalyst. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been uh, in channels and partnerships and alliances and ecosystems for 28 years. Uh, I've had the uh, pleasure of running channels of big companies like IBM and Lenovo. I got to do an entrepreneurial gig of building a channel tech company around AI and mobility and social. I got a chance now for five years to be a global analyst, waking up every morning thinking about partners and vendors and distributors and, and this decade of the ecosystem uh, as we're coming into it. And, you know, again, I get to uh, spend every waking moment, you know, thinking about this and connecting dots. So it's a great place to be. Super. All right. Well, let's dive straight in. So what it appears to be right now is that's what's happening in the world is marketing budgets are going to get cut, right? People are going to go back to direct selling, which is really outbounding, right? And uh, and then some feel forward looking folks are going to focus on partnerships and leveraging the moats that they've created and then the, the relationships they have in the marketplace. But before we go into that piece, right, talk to us a bit, a little bit about the 28 moments in a considered purchase, and then let's dive into how the indirect channels can help revenue leaders. Yeah. So the first thing is nothing ever dies. Uh, so we're not trying to sell magazines here. This is not a clickbait title, but the world works in waves, in layers. And, and we know this uh, in our own jobs, but looking back, I, you know, the decade of sales for many of us, and I carried a bag into the decade of sales, which is, you know, 1999, the start of Salesforce. And, you know, you went into that decade as, you know, carrying a bag, thinking that you were born to be a salesperson. You managed your territory with your gut. It was great times until two years later when you couldn't get a job in sales without deep sales tech skills and CRM skills and, and things like that. You know, 10 years later, the same thing happened to marketing. You know, you walked into that decade thinking, you know, 50% of your marketing dollars were wasted. You just didn't know which 50%. It was pretty funny back then at cocktail parties. Well, a couple of years later, you couldn't get a job in marketing now with 9,932 companies on the MarTech stack. And, you know, just a completely different world. And during that decade, the head of marketing started spending more on technology than the CIO at many companies. And now we're in this decade of ecosystems or this decade of partnerships where uh, we look at things and the average customer, doesn't matter what market you're in, the average customer has seven partners. And these aren't the transacting partners of the past. 
not talking about channels anymore or transacting channels. We're talking about the people at every stage of the journey. And what you just brought up, the 28 moments, we know more about customers now because we're forced to, you know, we're going into the end of cookies where we can just go grab a piece of MarTech or ad tech and, you know, pay for those early moments. And, you know, all of us are the products on the internet and, you know, other companies are tracking us and, and providing that information. Well, that's going away. And companies are now looking at these 28 moments, which is really the average of a considered purchase. The last time you bought a car, you spent on average 28 moments watching YouTube videos and reading eBooks and magazines and maybe even talking to neighbors and friends and going on social media. Like I could probably track through before you even hit a manufacturer's website to configure the car, before you downloaded the invoice cost, the backend rebates before you went to the dealership. That all happens in software. It happens in hardware. It happens almost in every industry. And now these 28 moments are owned by others. And, and these others aren't an influencer list for your marketing department. These are potential partnerships. There are spheres of influence that your customer goes through in those early moments. And the owners of the ebook, the speech, the board member of that association, that person at the chamber of commerce, whoever it is that wraps around your customer early, it's now a partnership opportunity to go get them on board, to onboard them, to educate them, maybe even incent them, co-market, co-sell with them. But if you can attribute the work they do and share the data with them, the earlier we get a customer into the cycle or, or we get visibility to customer, as marketing and sales folks, we know the earlier we get in, the bigger success we have. So now it's a partnership attempt to go and find these early moments, get them into MQLs so we can start working our magic. That's actually super fascinating because now, from what you just said, it's much clearer that this is not just technology integrations we're talking about, right? This is actually about partnering with people that we never thought that we should partner with, right? And so, so there is a big, big distinct difference for the folks that are listening on the phone or on the, on the podcast is that traditionally we used to have these like two tier distribution models, three tier distribution models, marketplaces, all, all of those still have a role. But what Jay is talking about is actually, let's start to talk about all of the people that or places or materials that the customers or prospects are consuming before they even get to you, right? And so MarTech helps with some of it, but the commercialization of those relationships is what, I, at least what I'm thinking, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is what I'm thinking what creates the ecosystem because in, in an ecosystem, everybody relies on each other, right? No one person can actually deliver all of the things. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, your your customer, your prospect has seven partners through their entire life cycle that, and the life cycle never ends now in a subscription consumption model, but they've got these seven partners and some of those partners are highly influential and they'll either buy your product or your competitors. And in a lot of cases, you won't know that you lost a deal. You won't even know there was a deal. Yep. And so this struggle now, and a lot of it, we can learn from B2C consumer back to the car companies again. Yep. You know, where BMW and Mercedes and Chevy and, and others would be relying on that dealership to sell you better than the competitive dealership across the street. Nobody goes to dealerships anymore to get sold. Yep. There's 62 car companies, there's 365 brands of cars. We're all empowered consumers now. And now the BMW and Mercedes strategy is not to fuel up their dis their distribution point, which is the dealer. Yep. Go find that YouTube vlogger that's putting a little drag strip race together of a Ford F-150 Lightning versus a yep, yep. Cybertruck, which hasn't hit yet, versus a Rivian and 
everything else. People are just fascinated with all these areas where they can walk into the dealership and yep. be smarter than the salesperson and know from the sales manager perspective within $100 of what they're going to be able to negotiate. And so that's the point now of attack in consumer, and it's becoming the point of attack for anyone in B2B sales or marketing. So if we unpack that a little bit, right? It's what you're saying is that across the entire sales cycle or the revenue cycle, as we've, we've been calling it, right? Like there are partnerships that we or people that are the leaders of those teams, right? Need to proactively think about. And those are not the partnerships that were, that took place in the last like 10, 15 years. These are newer partnerships and the models that we need to deploy are going to be different and newer. And they, and we can take inspiration from other parts of the, let's call it commercial world, where there could be brand partnerships or media partnerships, or there could be like like uh, licensing partnerships or, or consumption partners. I mean, it's just, there's just tons of different types of new partnerships that are coming down the pipe that we should be open to. But is that what you're saying? It is. If you say it another way, there's, again, we're going back to consumer or, or buyer behavior and psychology here. Yep. But there's 14 spheres of influence today on a B2B buyer. And so social media, I'm not talking about any, you know, Facebook versus LinkedIn versus Twitter. Yep, yep. What we're talking about is social media as a whole is one of those 14. Media companies is one of those 14. Yep. Associations are one yep. of those 14. Peer groups are yep. one of those 14. Analyst groups like me are one of yep. those 14. So we can talk through all 14, but they're the ones that generate, by the way, the eBooks, the events, the yep. magazines, the meetups. They, they're doing these influence points, but they're owned by these spheres. And again, it's it's a little bit you know analytical here, but you can actually define for your company who all the watering holes. If I went and asked all of your prospects three questions: What do you read? Yep. Where do you go? Yep. And who do you follow? And yep. I were able to you know worldwide be able to get your entire market tam to yep. answer that question. I would get a short list of magazines, of peer yep. groups, of association across the board that basically is their spheres of influence, and they're the authors of those twenty eight moments. And then I can get a $10 an hour intern to go and double click on every one of those logos, every magazine, every peer group, and find out who's buzzing in those watering holes. Yep. So who are these super connectors yep. that are driving the conversation on social, who are speaking at a conference in Las Vegas or upcoming in Miami? Who yep. are those people that sit on the board of the association? Who are those people that sit on that local chamber of commerce? Whatever business you're in, there are literally a hundred super connectors that you need to know who they are. You need to have a list in your office ranked by number one through number 100. Those hundred people, by the way, need to know who you are. They need to know enough to be dangerous, that 30-second elevator pitch. Yep. And third, unprovoked, if they could endorse you, either on stage or in a podcast, or by the way, you know, at the hotel lobby bar late at night, that's going to be key to getting you to vendor selection. Yep, yep, no, totally. And what I love about this is all of this, if followed, leads to efficient growth, which is the state of affairs where we are in the world. And uh, and and it's not that much work, right? Like, it's I'm surprised by like how many companies I talk to, even with my role at demand base, right? It's where people have not done this work to the extent that it should be done. Everybody does like one round of interviews with like five people and they're like, we're good, you know, no problem. We're, we got to go to market. We put a page up, we did some ABM and we're rocking on, right? But you actually have to continue to do this over and over again, because at the end of the day, revenue leaders have only two key levers, right? One is close more deals faster and two is raise prices. And the only way you can do both of those things are by actually understanding what can you serve 
and how fast can you serve it to the marketplace? What do you think? Well, by the way, uh, you're absolutely right. The revenue cycle, I break it into three components. And we spent all of our time talking about kind of that first component. And here are my titles to the three components. Getting your customer to the dance, getting them on the dance floor, and then keeping them dancing all night long. So 76% of companies today in every industry are either executing or thinking about a subscription or consumption model. Right from your car manufacturer that's going electric, then self-driving, then transportation as a service, to your toothbrush, to your software, to your hardware, everything you buy as a B2B or B2C consumer is thinking subscription consumption. So that point of getting your customer on the dance floor used to be everything. For 40 years in my life, most of my life in the channel has been all about that resell, getting the customer's money through a third party. 75% of world trade flows indirectly. And you bought your last car from a dealer. You bought your last TV from a retailer. You bought your last jar of peanut butter from a grocer. You're always working with a third party to collect the customer's money. And now that whole stage of getting the customer on the dance floor really doesn't matter. I mean, if they buy through a marketplace, which is the fastest growing route, if they buy direct or if they buy indirect, it doesn't matter. Product-led growth. There's all kinds of models here that 76% of CEOs are changing their companies into, but that's the first 30 days. And now the question for the revenue cycle is, how do we drive adoption, integration, stickiness, upsell, cross-sell, enrichment every 30 days forever? Remember, the average customer has seven partners that overlay those three stages of the revenue cycle. And unless you know, as a sales or marketing professional, as if you don't know at least a few of those seven, you're never probably going to know all seven. But the numbers are staggering in terms of how big that really gets in terms of the size of your ecosystem. Yeah. And this, this, by the way, is why I say that the CRO role or the revenue leader's role is almost as important or if not more important now than the product leader's role, right? Because typically in B2B and definitely in B2B SaaS, we, 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 we spend a lot of time praising product product leaders and stuff, which is is required, right? Like they have a really tough job, right? But when you have product-led growth, you have sales-led growth, you have community-led growth, you have marketing-led growth, you have like partner-led growth, right? You have all of these led growth models, right? Which a person actually has to go figure out, how do I do this while I'm competing with some of the people who are, I'm partnering with? That's a pretty tough job, right? Very few people can actually operate in that environment because something's always breaking. And I know the the something's always breaking model has always been there around the sales sales led growth world. But in that world, it was all about, well, people on falling stages, right? That's very different than the world we're living in because somebody actually went and struck a partnership with somebody else would actually give them a slight edge. And then now I have to think about what am I going to do to get that edge back or edge them on, right? And so this 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 world that the CRO or the revenue leader or the CMO, right, whoever is... I, I always say like whoever cares about the customer the most should basically go lead the lead the team, right? Um, but that person's job is actually super duper tough. It is. I mean, we spent a long time, you know, a couple decades trying to break down the silos between sales and marketing. And companies like Demandbase and others were pivotal in in getting these teams to work together like never before. And, you know, approaches like account-based marketing and other things were were key. But when I'm talking about this dancing all night yep. long and things, now you got to break down that customer success silo and get all three teams working together. You've got this channel silo, which getting the customers on the dance floor for that first 30 days is really important. So that's the fourth silo that needs to be broken. And then with most companies now, the product and product-led growth and everything else is the fifth silo. So now you're just looking at a standard company 
with lines yep. of business, sales yep. and marketing and customer success and product and strategy, operations, finance, HR. You basically have to break all the silos. And the way to do it is not to create a new monster silo yep. with everybody inside. It's to keep a business running the same way, but deploy your ecosystem folks and yep. embed them inside each of those roles. Yep. So when marketing, for example, direct marketing is trying to get into those 28 moments and the best marketing in the world might get you into four of them. Like if you land on that BMW website and you start configuring a BMW and putting the rims and coloring it up and getting the yep. options on it, like they know they're moving you to that point of selection. Like that's the later moments. Yep. So if you're in that scenario, you're going to want to embed into that marketing team to say, who's looking at the other 24 moments? Assuming we're wildly successful and get to four of the 28 late, yep. who's getting to the 24 early moments? And that partnership person works for the marketing department, not a channel team or ecosystem team. Yep. And the same goes for product, APIs and SDKs yep. and building your product ecosystem first. All across the company is an embedded team now. It looks like data scientists more than yep. it looks like some channel account managers nowadays. Yep. No, I, you're, you're, you're super right. And um, I can, the data science example resonates with me because I was building a, a data company which then demand-based bots. So I spent a lot of time with them. Right? And when we started the data science, the company, it, like the data science people were like in a silo sitting in IT, right? Until somebody realized that they can actually help solve go-to-market problems and help people understand the why something is happening or why it's not happening. And the why it's not happening was actually more interesting than the why it is happening, right? And it is happening, meaning deals are won faster, ASPs goes up, like, you know, all the traditional metrics, right? And yep. so the, the, the partner team basically being distributed makes a lot of sense as well because different parts of the organization may need different, like, scholar partner injections, you know? Well, and they do. Because some, some, some parts of the organization may already be further ahead, right? Like if you go to marketing, especially brand marketing, they already know this stuff, right? They're like, we're not going to exist without paid media. And we're also not existing without relationships with other forms of influence. So we know this stuff, right? But like the, the mid-market sales team may actually not know about anything about it. So rather than creating this like mid-market channel team, you just have one partnership leader who is focused on the mid-market strategy, report to the mid-market VP, and you've solved it. Yeah. So you've got... Um... You know, each of the line of businesses now, you know, 65% of SaaS is bought outside of IT. So each of the lines of business have spent 20 years now building up their stacks, the MarTech, the ad tech, the sales tech, yep. CX tech, product tech, HR tech. And guess what? You've got these huge data lakes now with these SaaS tools just yep. hemorrhaging data into a big lake that isn't being investigated, isn't being yep. condensed and cleansed and consolidated. Yep and isn't being valuable. And guess what? The data scientists that may have started in the product group, this happened in my startup as well. You know, you just give them a peek at these marketing and sales and other data lakes. Just, yep. and they're like, holy smokes. And they go to town on it. They spend totally. weekends rolling up their sleeves, you know, chunking out insights and predictive and prescriptive stuff. And that's before any machine learning or AI or anything gets involved. You got humans yep. just seeing, you know, low hanging fruit. And this is why data science needs to be deployed throughout the organization. Yep. And the same thing goes for partnerships. A lot of that data lake is filled up with partner-related data and that can be executed on. And it's not about hiring another channel account manager and putting them in St. Louis because that's the next you know capacity and coverage plan you've got. It's yep. literally putting in a community manager that can take a stripe of the market 
and work in these watering holes and go and get these hundred super connectors. And they're not only playing in those 28 moments, they're helping facilitate that point of sale. 24% of marketplace activity today, another person outside the company presses the buy button on behalf of you. And then every 30 days forever, they're playing everywhere. And so this whole idea of uh, embedding becomes everything. I totally agree. And again, I know we call it the partnership manager, but the what you just said about the community manager, right? Thank you to COVID and everything that's happened in the last 24 months and the rise of like, I don't know, five, 5 million communities out there, right? And also, I would say the unbundling of LinkedIn a little bit, right? Is people are going to get these virtual experiences, which are much, much, much better than just having this public conversation on TikTok or, or maybe Twitter. And then, and then you can't meet people in person, but they, what they've found is that what... <laughs> At least, at least uh, this is what people will do in the half a dozen communities that I've been is I'll go and look at LinkedIn and then I'll go find the person in one of the Slack channels. And then if they're there, I'm just having a conversation straight up, right? I'm not actually waiting for it, right? And so, but the person who can create these relationships with multiple communities is also super duper important because every revenue leader should be thinking about community-led growth as well because that is how companies like Ironclad and have actually become large, 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 large players in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So here's another angle that you can, that you can take from that is, you know, the 28 moments we talked about, we talked about the 14 spheres of influence, but yep. back to the psychology of the buyer. And by the way, the majority B2B buyer in four years will be a millennial. Yep. So we're going through uh, some demographic shifts uh, yep. in a major way. Yep. But here's another way. All of us have preferences. Yep. of how we receive information and how we want to do business. Yep. And I'll tell you that ranking still at the top is face-to-face, is the telephone, yep. is email. So, yep. I mean, those th- still rank, you know, right at the top. There's literally 12% of people who love podcasts, and that's kind of their number one way of receiving information. That yep. you know, Webinars is lower than that. Twitter is at like 2%. But you can actually get, you know, take 30 different ways that information can be tr- transferred. You, you mentioned Slack channel and things like that. So... Up to 30 ways, everyone has their own top to bottom preferences. Yep. And if you, you know, decide we're going to cut out the telephone, well, you just cut out 32% of your buyer's preference. Yep. That might be okay, but probably not. If you yep. decide to cut out face to face, especially post COVID, you know, you've cut out again that same percentage, but it goes down the list, which is more important is if you decide that podcasts are not important to you, you've just told 12% of your audience who live on podcasts that you're not going to play in the way that they like to get smart. If if you cut out webinars, you're going to cut out that. If you cut out Twitter, you're going to cut out 2%. And the question is, you know, maybe that, you know, is okay. But I say it's not. It's a massively parallel, 30 different communication vehicle, 14 spheres of influence and 28 moments. It's massively parallel, you know, marketing and sales. And that approach is purely, you know, digital first, but analog second. Yeah, and so I, I totally agree with you because let's call them these channels of communication, right? You cannot give up on any one of them because the reason why people go to Twitter is because t- Twitter is where people like to engage with influencers and at their own level, right? So if you didn't spend time with that, you missed out on 2%, but that could be really influential 2%, right? But the way to think, and this again, I can go back to the, the job of a revenue leader is so tough now because it's so complex. Now you have to think about who am I going to staff to do that job? And how much am I going to pay them? And how does that fit into the rest of my revenue? Let's call it operations, right? And go build that out. And there is a framework, right? Like like all of these channels, that level of people that are in them, the type of support they need, right? Like 
this is what revenue leaders need to think about. And it's complex. But going back to what you just said, is if you don't do them, you are going to miss out on deals without even knowing about them because putting some landing pages and some basic ads out there will get you some traffic, but the larger conversation is happening word of mouth. So Yeah, so go, you know, my advice there is go rewatch the movie Moneyball. <laughs> there is inside baseball here for sales, marketing, yep. and channels and everything yep. else. Yep. And, and the whole premise of the movie is on-base percentage. Yep. And for the whole premise of marketing and sales and customer success and the premise of partnerships at scale, is on-base percentages. Yep. And what that movie tried to tell you is basically quantity, not quality. And that's the absolute opposite of what we learned in college. Yep. And for most of our early managers, that's the opposite. They always said, you know, go grab the three things and swing for the fences. If our you know, partners or our customers like events, let's throw, you know, let's hit a grand slam <laughs> and throw the best event possible. If they yes. like, you know, advertising, let's go run a Super Bowl ad. Yes. And, the, and yes. the fact of the matter is in today's world with the noise and clutter and with all these 30 channels across 28 moments, across 14, the, the fact of the matter is you can't make spelling mistakes and you don't want to be making grammar mistakes, yep. but quantity outrules quality at, at this point. And it's not, you know, two ends here. We're not black and white on, on how we're explaining it. But the fact of the matter is most companies are still um, at a top level focused on grabbing those one, two, three big hitters and swinging for the fences. And the yeah. companies that you mentioned a couple that are doing extremely well are actually swinging for singles or getting okay. hit by a pitch or yep. walking or any way you can get on first base early yep. in those 28 moments is literally going to drive your company. Yep, yep, yep. No, I agree. All right, let's talk about the manage, monitor, and measure framework. Because we could talk about hours on just this piece, but I'm like, there's the rest of the podcast where we need to give people something actionable so they can do something with it. Yeah, so, I mean, in everything, right? It's, um, and, and I publish a, a channel landscape, which has 223 companies that are run by entrepreneurs that are innovating in these spaces. So when we talked about attribution, when we talked about data sharing, when we talk about these measuring these moments and monitoring these moments. You can't have a human out there trying to connect dots. You have to have a platform. Yep. Much like you have a MarTech platform, you have a channel or, or partnership tech platform yep. that can do these things at scale and can make it you know, very actionable. And so as you manage all the, these three stages, you're going to want to think about a, a channel tech stack as in right now it has 11 different categories to it as you're applying those seven partnerships and every one of your end prospects, and how can I find those moments and measure them and action them? How can I find that, you know, at that point of sale, regardless of how the money changes hands, how can I be making sure it's a frictionless environment for my customer? Yeah. And I'm at the, all the points of all the cash registers within my market TAM, yeah. I'm there. And then yeah. finally, you know, every 30 days forever, how are we going to do this at scale and drive those partnerships who are driving adoption and stickiness and everything in our clients. So this is that long-term customer journey that never ends in an entire now new tech stack to many sales and marketing folks that paint the ecosystem around the moments and allow it to be actionable and giving you predictive and prescriptive advice yep. on what to do next. Yep. No, I agree. Also, I would just want to point out that yes, we do need to make the experience frictionless for our prospects and our customers, but we need to spend an equal amount of time making it frictionless for our employees. Because those people have to carry all of these things out, right? Again, I go back there and I'm super passionate about this, this topic because 
I've spent now, I think like 220 podcast episodes speaking with very senior leaders and in, in go to market. Like this role is super complicated because these pieces of how a customer buys or becomes a customer then stays a customer are complicated because a company is a, let's call it a combination of capabilities and those capabilities take time to build. And so we can T2, D3 these things and get lucky, but to build a large sustainable business, you have to think about capabilities and the same amount of time that we put in how our external entities with our customers and prospects and analysts and, and advisors and investors like need to spend time on. We have to spend the, in, a, in a cool amount of time thinking about our employees because people in sales, people in marketing, people in customer success, biz dev, communities, like, you know, all of these people have to come together and work together to deliver that experience. Yeah, we could have an entire podcast on leadership and culture in a company. We could cool. talk about HR tech or employee experience, the yep. combination of CX, EX, and PX, partner experience. Uh, we now have science. Uh, we now have research to show. Yep. The companies that do that combination and have the right calculus makes it all make sense. So, you know, that's something that sits underneath all of this. And again, measuring the good to great, if you were to write that book today, would actually walk through each of those three things evenly across their chapters. Yep. So it sounds like, you know, these ecosystem leaders of sorts, right, like are out there. And that's what the future is. It was that word you were pointing us to. Well, it's, and by the way, it's, it's a different kind of leader. It's somebody yep. that isn't out there to build an empire. How can I become a senior vice president and go get 500 people reporting to me and then 5,000 yep. and I want to yep. build this massive empire. It's literally somebody that wants to build, you know, a, a, depends on the size of the company. But if I could have six vice presidents, one that's responsible for technology alliances, a couple responsible for strategic and business alliances. Yep. The other three, one is responsible for that influence channel, the 28 yep. moments. Yep. One's responsible that, which is your traditional channel chief from yep. 40, yep. for 40 years now. And then obviously one that's responsible for CX keeping customers for life and having a 108% retention rate. If I could have those six vice presidents and then everyone else report elsewhere, that would be fantastic. That would be kind of the new model of, okay. of what that is. And now we have companies like Microsoft, AWS, Google, IBM, uh, Monday. I mean, we're, almost every other day, we're seeing a big ecosystem chief come in. None of the ecosystem chiefs so far, and there's been over a dozen appointments, none of them so far have ever been a channel chief and ever been in a magazine on the front cover of a channel chief list. So yep. companies are maybe on purpose choosing people, and many of them are coming from McKinsey and Boston Consulting and Bain and yep. you know, very intellectual first people to design this new architecture and um, you know having transactional folks stay in their lane and become a really important piece, but maybe one sixth of the importance of the overall ecosystem yep. and having all those things run together. The biggest yep. of the big companies and all the trillion dollar companies now are turning that page and going that direction. And I'm assuming it's that's happening because the skill set or the playbook for what we've what we've discussed on this podcast this does not exist. And it's it's not like you can say, hey, one ecosystem person can only handle 150 accounts a quarter. You know, it's not like the SDR type of playbook exists today. This is being built, and so you need academics who can actually come in and create that environment. And then from this will, will will result playbooks that then the people who are really good at operations and care about operations just, just go and crank at it. Yeah, well, it is um, it is intellectual at this point because the KPIs are new. Yep. And when I have that technology alliance 
a vice president working for me, I'm not going to give them revenue and profit or SAP targets. Yep. I'm going to give them targets around co-innovation and value creation at scale and network yep. effects. Yep. Well, those are tough things to measure because, you know, we're just in the early stages of the tech stack to measure yep. it. Yep. And these people are going to be building as they go, kind of like that, you know, building the airplane while it's in the air. But but these KPIs are new and maybe five or 10 years from now, you can drive that into RevOps and figure yep. out for every API connection, how that connects to revenue down the road and stuff. But, yep. you know, if you tried to do that today, you'd have people quitting on you because they're not getting paid Correct. because you have no way to close their KPIs every quarter. Correct. And, and so for five of the six vice presidents now, it's literally brand new jobs. Yep. Well, we should get along in enterprise value, you know. Not new skills. These skills have been around. Like I I probably want to hire a consumer person that understands attribution to run my influence channel. Yep. And they've been around consumer maybe for 20 or 30 years. Correct. But the job we're giving them in B2B and in those 28 moments is a new job. And we're going to take some of their skills and create the job while they do it. No, no. I mean, mean, this is the... So where do people go to find these people then? Well, this is interesting. So, I mean, there are new watering holes. Uh, You know, we're tracking, you know, new peer groups that are dedicated to this. Partnership Leaders is an example. We have new events. You know, Partnership Leaders is running Catalyst in Miami later this summer in August. We have a new magazine. We have, uh, so of these spheres of influence, like analysts like myself that are dedicated to it, we have some consultants out there writing and doing some really good work. We have some social groups that are out dedicated to this. And, you know, we're recording a podcast as we speak here. So, you know, of the 14 spheres of influence, you're creating this market where these ecosystem professionals are. There's 12,000 people on LinkedIn now put ecosystem in their title. And there's now 600,000 people that use the word ecosystem as what they do. But, but they're not, they're not what we're talking, right? And, 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 if I could push back on that, right? These are people that have learned bits and pieces of what we're talking about, but they're not the broad thinkers, the non-empire builders, the let's go figure out how to create a frictionless process around the entire company, right? They're not that yet. Well, they might be. I mean, we've got some seven-figure people out there at really big companies I just named off that make over a million dollars a year in salary that are dedicated because they want to find like-minded people. Yep. And they're in their own journey, they're in their own 28 moments right now, yep, trying yep. to connect the dots with people who are living in their life. Um, but we have a lot of vice presidents, we have a lot of directors, we have a lot of managers, and we have a lot of individual contributors now. They're starting to walk into this going, this makes total sense. This decade of the ecosystem seems to be what fuels me as a person. Yep. And I could see retiring, you know, at the end of an ecosystem career. And again, like some of the um, peer groups and some of these events are really driving career conversations that I can see myself, yep. you know, at some point, maybe I'm going to be a million dollar salaried person at some point in my career, driving these six vice presidents and driving yep. the future of my company's valuation. So hopefully when there's a transaction of some type, yep. I get to retire on that and yep. go and circumnavigate on my sailboat. <laughs> Well, I will also say, because this is yet to be discovered, right, on how all this stuff plays out, is this ecosystem leader could also be an individual contributor role. It's just a very, very senior individual contributor role because their job is to go work cross-functionally, right? So I do, I, I know there's people on listening to this podcast from all around the world. And so in some cultures, it's looked at as uh, as a matter of pride that that you have like a 5,000 man team and stuff like that, you know, because we're still working with it. But I want to make, make sure we point out that the possibility that this could be a individual contributor EVP 
definitely exists because the demand of this role or these types of roles is high and no one person can work on strategy and operations both at the same time at scale at that level. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just give you yesterday versus tomorrow. Yep. Uh, yesterday, you start a company yep. and at some point in the future, you have to think about franchising. Yep. And I'll send you to another movie, The Founder, The Story of McDonald's. The whole first half of the movie is about moving the fry later closer to the burgers. It's product, product fit. Yep. And so the second half of the movie is this whole idea of putting a restaurant, once you've got that product fit, marketing and sales fit, yep. is to put a restaurant on every street corner. So yep. the channel story of the past has always been, when in my startup am I going to start to go figure out that it's not all going to be direct sales? Yep. I'm going to need to put a restaurant or donut shop or coffee shop on every street corner. Yep. Where today in ecosystem, it's not that conversation. That's only one of the roles. I mentioned six. Yep. The other five roles, if I'm an angel, if I'm a VC or if I'm a PE firm and somebody doesn't go through their pitch deck and dedicate one of those 11 slides to ecosystem, yep. I'm going to send, I'm going to stop the meeting at that point and I'm going to send them back yep. because they, you need to think. And if you're that sole founder, you got to be thinking about a third of your job as yep. ecosystem from the beginning. One of your first hires will be the people that figure out all these rev ops cycles and, and things like that. And your first head of sales should have these partnering skills and you're going to build your company into something like that. So you're always thinking about that first now, because I'll remind everyone in 40 years now, the best product has never won in our industry. The company that invents that product has almost never won. Yep. And the company that innovates the most usually never wins. Yep. It's a story. We always get outdone and the trillion dollar companies today never invented any of the products they have in market, yep. but they marketed them better and they had a better go to market. Well, and so Google was search engine number 17, right? Is that, is well, that's it. And I mean, obviously Microsoft Office wasn't the first Office suite. Yep. And uh, you could go through Apple wasn't the first smartphone. Yep. But you can go through every example. And if you think that you're going to invent this mousetrap and it's going to sell itself and you're going to become a trillion dollar cut, you're just not. It's the companies with the best sales, marketing, go-to-market engines that win. And it takes a little bit less heat off your product development, your minimum viable product at the beginning. And you got to think less about engineering and maybe place it next to ecosystem and other things early on. And if I'm not writing my business case, my business plan, if I'm not writing my initial pitch deck with that in mind, I think, you know, first of all, I wouldn't invest in you. But second yep. is, I think you're not seeing what the 40 years of our industry has taught you. Yep, yep, yep. All right. I have some more questions, but I know we're at time. And so we're probably going to do a second version of this because I do want to talk about the internal part of a company and how do we create that frictionless process internally, right? But with that said, Jay, do you have any closing thoughts? Oh my goodness, we've covered a lot, but uh, I, I look forward to, uh, <laughs> to, to round two. But that was probably my closing thought is yep. whether you're a founder yep. or whether you're a big-time executive and a big-time multi-billion dollar company today, the thoughts are kind of the same. Yesterday... You know, and for the last 40 years, the channel has taught us a number of things. And that's a very key component to ecosystems going forward. But it's only one of six swim lanes. Yep. So, Jay, I'm sure given that we have, I think, somewhere in like 9,000 VPs of sales and marketing that listen to this podcast, like how can people connect with you? Because what you've shared is coming at a good time because we are now going to be entering the world of efficient growth, which is like what everybody's talking about. But I always say people talk about it and then a quarter later, people actually get into it, right? But then more importantly, when we get into it is going to be planning for next year time, right? And so a lot of people will benefit from just connecting with you or just reading your materials or 
just even like dropping a note to you from just getting some tidbits of advice that can help them get started on this, let's call it ecosystem journey, right? So what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah. So for study, somebody who studies watering holes, I, I tend to be, try to be everywhere, but from somebody who studies behavior, I try to be in all 30 channels as well. If you want to send me an email, if you, you know, I try to be, I'm not a millennial, but I try not to accept phone calls. But anyway, uh, any which way, I mean, a qu simple Google search, you'll find my work on canalis.com. You'll find my LinkedIn newsletter and you'll find me in every one of the other 28 channels. And I respond, I go to bed with a zero inbox. I go to bed with a nice. zero social box. There are no red circles on my iPhone when I go to bed. Nice. So I will find you or you'll find me on any channel. Has anybody ever just picked up the phone and FaceTimed you? Uh, they do. Somebody did actually during our call. If you you heard the phone ring when you totally. were going through your intro. And it was some guy who installed our fridge who were getting to install our TV. He's phoning me for some reason, which, you know, I'll, I'll answer the phone 0% of the time. But I'm just thinking, since you're in every channel, I was thinking, man, the one thing Jay probably hasn't experienced is somebody just calling, actually FaceTiming him and saying, hey, I have a question for you, you know, and yeah. that would be pretty funny. Well, it comes in and it, one came in during this call. So uh, I, I'm really fast on the ignore button and I'm really fast at the, you know, send a voicemail, but it, it is digital first. I mean, the, the tip of the spear is digital first. Yep. Let me answer it via, you know, 140 characters first. Yes. And, and if, see you, if, need, if you have if you a much more specific minutes, ask, yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah, we make, all make, have probably links for the 30 yes. minute call and stuff like that, if it turns into that. But, you know, yeah. let, let's start with 140 characters as a, you know, cold call and then yep. warm it up that way. Yep. No, totally. Well, Jay, thank you so much. And for the audience, I hope you've got a lot from this conversation. I always say this whenever I have senior executives on the on the podcast with us is if you are going to reach out, please, please, please make the ask as specific as possible, because then the executive can actually do something about it. Otherwise, they read it, they get a smile out of it, or sometimes they frown and then they move on to the next part of their day because they're just so busy. So if you're going to hit up Jay, if you can, please make your ass super specific, he will respond. And I've known Jay for, I'm going to say, what, three, four years now, and he's always been gracious with, with his time. And so you will connect with him. And with that, Jay, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the industry. Thanks for coming on to the podcast and best of luck on your journey. All right. Thank you. And if you're specific, don't ask me to extend my car warranty as an opening. <laughs> See ya. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demandbase TV. 